This is the Worth Recovery Podcast, featuring women in addiction. Welcome back to the Worth Recovery Podcast. This is Amy. I'm your host here, and I'm a sex addict. I've been sober since December 2nd of 2012. Today, I have a guest with me, my friend Sally. Hello, everyone. I'm super excited to have Sally here with me. I've only known Sally for, I guess it's been probably about six months, maybe not even that. No, I've only been home for about three months. Three months, really? It's only been three months. Okay. Sally is um, a member of my 12-step fellowship group that I go to, and uh, and so you just joined us about three months ago. Three months. Super excited to have you. Yeah. And Sally also went to a women's retreat recently with me, um, and at this women's retreat, she shared what we call her first step, right? Yes. How was that experience to share your first step? Well, there was a lot of women in the room, and I just remember being so nervous and scared, and yet when I was done, I really felt um, the kinship there, the acceptance that everyone saw me. Uh, Everything was out there, and yet they heard me, they saw me, and they all still accepted me and hugged me, and it was a welcoming fellowship, uh, just connection that I'd never felt before. Awesome. So even though it was hard, it was still worth it, and and it felt amazing. Yeah. In our fellowship, um, we when we do our first step, when we work on our first step, we actually write it into a narrative or kind of a story about our lives, right? Yeah. And we tell who we are and kind of the story of our addiction. Um, I love that piece in the big book, in the Alcoholics Anonymous big book, where it says we talk about what it was like, what happened, and what it's like now, right? Yes. And uh, and that's really kind of the first step that we go through. We go through and so what was kind of your process? What did your sponsor have you do to help you kind of write this first step narrative about your life? That's an awesome question. So because I'm so new to recovery, I had no idea what the steps were or how to even start working them. Um, so she just told me to kind of write some of the things that you feel kind of led me to my addiction, kind of what you just said. And so I kind of made a bullet list, right? A bullet point list. Uh And then I turned it into her and I said, here we go. These are all the moments of my unmanageability. And she said, okay, could you write a little story about that? And so it never occurred to me to write it in story form. So Mm -hmm. my first attempt was kind of jumbled and kind of repetitive. And then by the third time um, I turned it back to her and she said, this is it. This is what you need to share. Yeah. And she was right. It kind of just, it was a lot more flowing. It kind of spoke exactly what I wanted to say. Yeah. And it went from this bullet point, you know, here, here, here to like this story of who I am, how my addiction affected me and my family. Yeah. I love that you use the word unmanageability because I did mean to say like that first step is that we admitted we were powerless over lust and our sexual addictions and love and all those things, relationships. And that our life had become unmanageable, right? And so this story tells kind of your life, your powerlessness, and talks about the unmanageability 
that was going on in your life. Definitely. So you said it, you kind of went through like maybe a couple drafts with your yeah. sponsor. So how long did it take you to put this together and make it work? Well, so um, she started with me right away. I Well, I was the one. I said, I want to get on recovery. Tell me what I need to do, where I need to go. I'm ready. <laughs> like all in. And um, she said, okay, well, let's start slowly. And I was like, no, I want to get going. So um, I started right away. Probably the first two days I'd met her, made my bullet point list. Mm-hmm. And then um, she was kind with me and said, okay let's turn it into a story and uh, that took me a lot longer yeah and then she realized that the retreat was coming up and she said I think you should share this at the retreat there would be a whole bunch of women around ready to accept you and so I only had probably a week after that and I spent so many hours I bet just writing it down and going over it and wondering is this gonna be you know what I need to say and what will portray the truth of who I am and where I was yeah and so we're going to we're going to have you read your story okay. and share your story here on the podcast which I'm super grateful that you're willing to do um, cuz I've heard your story and I think that there are so many women that are going to relate to what you have to say and and be able to to really connect with you um, women that you don't even know women that you may never know men also we have a lot of male listeners but I'm just really grateful that you're willing to do this and share and be vulnerable and share your entire story with us. And um, yeah, I know you haven't written form, so yeah. we're just going to kind of let you start here okay. and, and go from there, okay? Okay, here we go. My birth father left our family as he beat my mom, who was seven months pregnant with me. That was the day I was born, born into the confusion and chaos, born to a mother who was broken and a father that wasn't there. My mom did not handle the situation well and would often stuff rags into my mouth to silence my cries. Even now, as I look back and feel those rags in my throat, I feel the very silencing of my soul. As I grew into a toddler, things with my birth father became worse. He would intermittently show up, take me and my brothers for a few weeks, and then drop us back home. I have memories of him being sexual with me and teaching my older brother how to fondle me sexually. He would take naked pictures of us and have us do shameful things. But the trauma of those moments is eclipsed with the desire to have the attention, the so-called love and quiet whispers of being the good girl from my birth father. Early on, my mental, emotional, and spiritual programming was messed up as my birth father would reject me when I couldn't please him and then reward me when he was sexually satisfied. My mother told me when I was an adult that my birth father was a child molester and would often molest the babysitters. I asked her why she would let me go with him, and her answer was, I was tired and I needed a break. This is why I always felt like a burden to my mother. So to make up for my shame existence, I devoted myself to caring for my mother. The family would often sing a song about me. If you only ask her nicely, Sally will do anything, which was proven time and time again. I resent that song now, but when I was younger, I loved pleasing everyone, hoping if I pleased someone, they would finally love me. My mother remarried, and my stepfather was both physically and sexually abusive. He would beat me with a belt, and to this day, the sound of a belt snapping still makes me shudder. My early attempts to turn down my stepfather's sexual advances were met with severe punishments, so I learned saying no was not worth it, and I would do anything he asked just like that family song about me. 
My stepfather was completely different in his approach to me than my birth father, and I never sought for his attention. I would often receive physical punishments for him, from him for not being sexual. My family often talked about God, and I always got the unspoken impression that doing whatever someone wanted me to was part of that service and submissiveness that I was supposed to do to please God. I remember some of my family members saying similar statements to me in some strange witchized cult-like abuse. These acts from my other family members confused me further. As I was taught to please God, I needed to do shameful things and not tell anyone about them. Secrets became my expertise, and God became someone and something that I didn't understand or trust in. By the time I was eight years old, I had been sexually molested for most of my childhood that I could remember. To survive and cope with this severe trauma, I created a fantasy world in which I would escape. The more severe the trauma and abuse, the more intricate and soothing my fantasy world became. The scenes in my mind were comforting, and I often found myself preferring my fantasy world to my reality. This pattern of fantasy became a huge part of my life. When I was eight years old, my mom married for the third time. This is the man I call dad. He was never abusive and was, in fact, quite the opposite. He was gentle and emotional but he became my mom's punching bag. My mom seemed to take all her anger and pain out on my dad. I would often escape in my mind during their fights, or I'd run away to the backyard shed where I found comfort with my imaginary friends. And when I say imaginary friends, I mean grown adults in my mind that were my pretend parents who loved me and always knew just what to say and do to make me feel better. As I grew, the sexual abuse from my oldest brother worsened, and soon I was performing for him sexually most every day. He was a mixture of both the gentle coercion like my birth father and the angry abuse from my stepfather. I don't blame my brother. He was, after all, only a byproduct of what he was taught and shown. But the impact of his abuse, the impact that had on me was damaging and far-reaching. Sex became something I did to please my brother and soothe his anger so that he wouldn't beat me. I was good at reading the moods of my abuser and knew how to soothe them, a pattern that I continued in my marriage. This pattern of trying to soothe and please others with sex has caused confusions and patterns of addiction in my own marriage. But as a young child, it was the only way I knew. When I was 11 years old, my best friend moved in with us, and while her parents were in prison, She stayed with us, and my older brother started turning his sexual attention to her. Now I feel guilty for how relieved I was to see him using her instead of me for his sexual pleasure. And somehow, in a weird, strange way, I also felt rejected. As a tween, I was sexually abused by another older family friend. He would buy me gifts and take me on outings and expect me to be rewarded, reward him with sex. He was later convicted as a child sex offender. And I asked my mom, why did you let me go with him? Her answer was, because God tells us that we are to be kind and charitable with others. My child brain deduced that being charitable and kind meant doing things to please others, no matter what the cost was to myself. My child brain also concluded that God was strange and could not be trusted. My first sexual experience outside my family was with my best friend's boyfriend. I was 13 years old, and during the whole sexual experience, I was asking if he loved me more than her. I spent so much energy and time trying to please him and do things I had never done, hoping that I could be better than her, thinking if he chose me, then I would have something special no one else had. I was obsessively 
seeking for that validation, that attention and affirmation that I had value and worth. And that came from all the wrong places and all the wrong ways. This pattern of trying to win my friend's boyfriends was often repeated. When I was 14 years old, I was tired of the sexual abuse from my brother and I ran away from home. Living on the streets as a teen is rough. There I started having sex with anyone or everyone that looked my way. Men and women, old or young, it didn't matter. Adding in drugs, I was out of control. I even reduced myself to prostitution. I thought that I was special and desirable and I loved any attention I received. At that time, to me, sex equaled love. So in my mind, I was really loved. But there was this deep sense inside me that just wanted my fantasy world. So I would often escape there and soon escape there every time with masturbation. I know compulsive masturbation for me started young. It was a way to soothe myself and it became routine. As my addiction progressed, I can see that this is a big part of my addiction and escaping into fantasy. I became pregnant at 15 years old and I knew I didn't want the life for my baby that I had living on the streets. I knew adoption was the only way for my daughter to have a normal life, so I placed her for adoption. This was one of the most tragic days of my life because all I ever wanted was to be a mother, the kind of mother that I never had. After having my baby and placing her with a loving family, I tried to stop drugs. I tried to stop sex. I tried to live a clean life, and I tried to turn to God. I tried to learn to trust Him, but it was hard. It was confusing, and I had so much pain, and I started slipping after only a few months. Soon after, when I was 16 years old, I met my husband. We fell instantly in love, because of course I am a love addict. He was 18 years old and a virgin, and I was overly sexual with him, thinking that he wanted sex, and that if we had sex, then he would love me. Looking back, I can see how I pushed him to have sex before he was ready. But to me, it was my only way of life. We wanted to get married in our religious place of worship, which place required virtuous living. Our ecclesiastic leader suggested that if we could abstain from sex for six months, we would be approved to marry in that place of worship. And we mostly abstained, but we were still sexual every night, just no actual intercourse. Looking back, I can see that this period is a sure sign that I was and that I am a sex addict. I couldn't stop wanting sex and pushing the limits. In fact, it became more exciting and desirable since we weren't supposed to be doing it. My husband and I were married when I was 18 years old. The first week home after our honeymoon, my fantasy of a perfect marriage, a perfect life, and my happily ever after came crashing down over something that I made really big. I felt rejected, abandoned, and that I was not sexy enough, beautiful enough, or just plain not enough. I soon began to search outside my marriage, blaming him, and I began to search for that approval somewhere that I could be enough, that I had something special that no one else had, and that I could be someone that was the only person that someone desired. My fantasy world drove this concept on, and I constantly envisioned this perfect someone who would love me, cherish me, and always say and do the perfect thing. I was hurt by my husband, but more than that, I was let down by the perfect fantasy that I could never have. So I kept looking for it, hoping that I would find that fantasy in real life. And the time, at this time, and shortly after our marriage, I started having several boys on the side that I kept as just in case things didn't work out with my husband. 
I was reconnecting with old out acting out partners, but I knew enough not to have sex. However, I also learned that I didn't fully trust in unconditional love, and I didn't fully commit to my husband. A year into our marriage, I was taking care of my very elderly grandmother. Being alone all day and night while caring for her left me lonely. My husband was working and going to school and was rarely home. I found myself lonely and bored and began flirting with a boy from my nursing class. The boy from class turned sexual real fast. I spent the night with him having sex, and I felt shameful and guilty the entire time. I told my husband about it. We separated. When we got back together, I promised I would never do anything like that again. And for the most part, I kept my promise for the last 18 years. After my first affair, we tried to mend things in our marriage. We added seven adorable cuties to our family and enjoyed the ups and downs of family life. And things were mostly positive. I kept thinking and feeling that if I just did this or looked like that, then I would finally be enough and my fantasy of being cherished would come true. I also felt the rage building that I was worthless, unlovable, and never enough. But instead of doing anything about it, I threw myself into mothering and I began my search for this so-called perfect life. I was living the extreme of presenting this so-called perfect version of myself and hoping to gain acceptance and approval from others. The unworthiness I felt was mounting, also my double life began. There was this so-called perfect poster version of me on the outside, and all the while, the other version of me aching, hurting, and building that resentment and anger. I knew I wasn't the woman I was displaying, and the more attention I received for what I was doing, the more unworthy I felt, believing that if anyone knew the real me, I knew that they would reject me. Because to me, being abandoned is the worst possible thing to imagine. Finally, after giving birth to our fifth child, all my trauma came crashing down on me. I was 30 years old, living this so-called perfect life that I couldn't keep up with. I was dealing with my own food addiction, struck with severe postpartum depression, and I was angry because I thought that my husband was the problem. I really thought that if he just did dot, 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 <laughs> then I would be happy. I spent most of the next seven years in pain and dealing with many health problems. At that time, I became a sexual anorexic, and then I would explode with eroticized rage and have binge sex with my husband for weeks. I see the pseudo-sobriety of my sex addiction that was out of control. I was not masturbating, and I did not flirt or seek for love arousal outside my marriage, but I was also not truly connecting with my husband. I was just using him for sex when I wanted it. Last year, at the age of 37, my husband started traveling more for work and I was often home alone in pain and lonely. At this time, I was also in an intense car accident. We had lost a baby and I had four surgeries in a row. I was desperate and in need of escape. I first found escape through online gaming. I found this online game that was a chat room. It was called Second Life and I truly did start to have a second life. From day one, I was hooked on that extra attention from this man I met and the idea that I could be whoever I wanted without consequences, or so I thought. For a year, I was consumed with this fantasy online chat room. I sexted, I used people for my own pleasure, and I was sucked, sucked into sex and love addiction. Only I was in complete denial. I became truly powerless over the ability to stop my addiction alone. I split myself into two personas so I could act out despite my firm belief and value of honesty and authenticity. 
At this time, in the height of my addiction, I also stopped praying to the God I had always felt comfort and strength from. I could not continue acting out in my addiction and face God. Those were incompatible. I felt powerless as I sunk further away from the light and was consumed completely by the darkness of my own making. While being a part of the fantasy world in Second Life, I started writing erotic fiction. I became consumed with the attention I was getting from my writing, and I loved the arousal and self-pleasure while I wrote. In fact, I even told myself that this was just a way to care for myself while I was in pain. I was in complete denial, as I believed that having these sexual pleasurable feelings with my body was the only way that I could feel pain, or I could feel good in this pain. While writing that erotica and living my second double life, I came in contact with a man that I saw as the fulfillment of my perfect fantasy. I had tried to disconnect and quit contacting him several times, knowing that there were red flags of danger all around, but I couldn't stay away for long. I needed that high, the relief and the fantasy. I needed that numbing that my addictive self felt with him. I continued to reach out to him, putting myself more in danger with each reconnection. We sexted and soon started spending 15 hours a day on the phone together. He knew my first real name and knew I was married, but I didn't ever tell him I had children, where I lived, or my last name. I thought that I could continue to keep him on the side as my boyfriend to turn to when things were going wrong in my marriage, or when I needed the escape from the pain. This truly was powerless unmanageability because I did value commitment within my marriage. And yet I still continued to seek out sexually and emotional affairs with men who were not my husband. I thought I valued fidelity as a married woman, but my actions were not congruent with my beliefs. I hurt my husband. I lost his trust. And I jeopardized my marriage as I couldn't stop and continued to take more risks. I also stopped acting like a real mother. For 18 years, I had worked the whole of my children's life to ensure that my children felt loved, that they had a healthy connection with me, and that they were raised in an environment free from what I had experienced growing up. However, while entrenched in my addiction, my actions, my words, and my example was the complete opposite. I lied to my children and my husband, and I lost the respect of my family as I continued to sink further into my addiction. When I was caught by my husband, I would lie, distract him with sex, and vow to never do it again. I vowed that to myself, and I always seemed to break that vow, sometimes even just moments after making it. When I was caught by my children, I would lie, think it wasn't a problem, and believe I could really stop at any time. Sexting while driving my son to choir practice and sexting on a family vacation are some of the low moments as I look back and realize I couldn't stop and I couldn't prioritize anything above my addiction. I see unmanageability in my life the most when I was taken by the man from my so-called life. The day after one of my surgeries, he showed up and came and took me. In the confusion, I thought that I was going to live out my fantasy life. My husband and children were somehow forgotten, and I turned to live out this fantasy. It was at this time that I completely lost the trust of my husband and children as I abandoned them and was taken by a dangerous man. My husband and children thought I was dead. They had no clue of my addiction and knew nothing of how I could have fallen so deep into this fantasy world and this trouble. During this time, I put my children in danger of a predator and my husband in danger of this violent, vindictive man. Because of my addiction, I gave up my roles of wife and mother to claim that role of sex addict. I left my children without a mother and my husband without a wife. 
while I was being taken across the country, I was in a whirlwind of destruction. At the lowest point, I attempted suicide, believing that there was no way that I could face God. I couldn't face my husband. I couldn't face my children. And I couldn't even face myself with all that I had done. Too easily in the darkness of despair and addiction, I was crying out to God to help me. But I didn't always know what help I wanted or needed. Just that crying out in desperation, that searching and that longing for something unidentifiable. And now, after all that has happened, I still am searching. The difference in my search now is that I am finally able to recognize this love from God flowing in me and around me in ways and people that were already there. I had just been blinded by the darkness, the darkness of my childhood trauma and the intense, all-consuming darkness of my addiction. Before I was taken by the man for my second life, I was healing from the fourth surgery in a row, recovering in the basement of my mom's house. All my childhood trauma came rushing back to my mind, my heart, and my soul. I felt as I did, like a child being in the dark basement, being punished for telling someone of my abuse. My mind couldn't make sense of the difference in the situation, and my heart was already torn apart as I was entrenched in addiction. My soul was aching as I felt abandoned by God, with his lack of making the pain go away, as I had selfishly and pridefully been demanding from him. My physical body was beyond depleted with the pain in the many surgeries as I turned to addiction and away from my family, and I was a responsible and active participant in mine being taken and abandoning my family. After two weeks of being with this other man, I realized the truth of my situation. I escaped and checked myself into a hospital and called my husband. Because of the forgiving and tender heart of my husband, he arrived at the hospital to pick me up, and he lovingly told me that it didn't matter what happened, that he loved me, and that we would work this out together. I was transferred to Dr. Karn's sex addiction inpatient treatment facility in Arizona called Willow House. There, I recovered physically, mentally, and spiritually, and there I learned what a sex addict was. I learned what a sex addiction was and came to admit that this is my main addiction. My body is now healed, and I better understand my addiction, and more importantly, I have a jump start and a direction to deal with my childhood trauma, which is the reason for most of this recent episodes, which the therapists tell me is called trauma reenactment. I have been working hard to start rescuing myself, to start validating myself, and to be fully present and rigorously honest with my recovery. Yes, I had severe trauma from my past. I had unrelenting physical pain and complicated medical problems. I had severe mental issues, both genetic and situational. But I was the one that did not handle the situation in the best way. I caused myself, my husband, and my family heart-wrenching pain. And for that, I am attempting to recover, to make amends, to turn my life around, and I am trying to heal. Because of my addiction, my relationship with my higher power has been compromised and changed. Do I still believe in that same God I did before my addiction? I am contemplating who my higher power is that I can surrender my unmanageable life to. Knowing I am powerless over my sex addiction, I'm wondering who is power enough to help powerful enough to help me? Is there really a higher power or God who is merciful enough to extend grace and accept me as I am? And if so, who is he? Is he a she? What are the qualities that make my higher power powerful enough to help me? These are just some of the questions I had running through my mind as I wrote my, this story in my first step. 
I'd like to end with my poem that gives me more than a glimmer of hope. And just as a disclaimer, I've used the words him and his for my higher power. If these words offend you, please replace them with it or her or light or love. Whatever and however you define your higher power is uniquely yours, just as this way is uniquely mine. The Qualities of God by Sally Who is God? Is he like my birth father? That man who molested me since I was a toddler. I know I would want more for a daughter of my own, but how can I learn when this was all that was shown? In my search for qualities of God, of who and what he is to me, I move my eyes around to the examples that I see, or rather the examples that I saw, I experienced, and I felt. Next is my stepfather. He beat me with a belt. I hope God would never hit his child. I hope that his love is tender, meek, and mild. And if I really am God's daughter, I would hope for more from a heavenly father. Could God be like an older brother? I hope he's not like mine, because my brother was molesting me and beating me since age nine. Actually, the abuse went on for many years, but age nine was when I remembered those extra tears. Tears I spilled for the loss of my virtue and the loss of hope. Tears for the wounds and dirtiness that I could never clean with soap. Even the baptism which was supposed to wash me clean felt like a farce, a fantasy, an untainable dream. Looking around to see who and what a loving God could be, I see my adoptive dad and hope God would be stronger than he. Yes, dad was tender, open and caring, but I hope God would never accept abuse so scarring and tearing. Abuse from my mom that tore dad apart. Abuse from my mom that scarred his gentle heart. But maybe the scars, the blood, and the tears shed by my dad were like the ones Jesus suffered for all who thought that he was bad. So when someone abuses me and hurts me, do I just turn the other cheek and remember the goodness within them, even when that's buried deep? So this is how I defined myself and God, someone to shine eternally bright. This is how I became a fraud. I started smiling, giving others my hope and my love. I took their abuse, their pain, and I would shove, shoving that pain down deep and covering it with a smile, then loving them more, walking with them mile after mile, believing and hoping they would see their own worth and maybe mine, hoping the light I gave out would somehow shine, shine through the darkness of their own sin and pain. But I couldn't stop the tears from their abuse falling like rain, not the kind of rain that goes pitter-patter, landing softly like it doesn't matter. No, my tears from abuse are violent. They cause me to shake. In the moments I let them out, it feels like an earthquake. This earthquake rumbled and shook me to my core. Then the pain did grasp my heart and it tore, tearing open the wounds of the past that I had tried to forget, uncovering memories reminding me of more times I had wept, weeping for my baby self without the loving arms of a mom or dad, weeping for my toddler self that learned saying no was bad, weeping for my young girl self who was abused and torn apart, weeping for my teenage self who had closed her heart, and now as a woman, I weep for my sin and my addiction. Realizing that I would chase after any kind of friction, friction that caused a spark, whether big or small, friction that spiraled me downward, causing me to fall. Falling to my knees, all alone with no one around, I lay my head on the concrete ground. Looking for God, a father, a friend, I lift my head and I feel my neck bend. 
Brokenhearted, I lift my chin. Looking upward, I can finally see him. He is like the rays of the sun shining down, unseen but felt, cascading all around. I open my hands and bring in his love. I open my heart and I feel him above. Breathing in the light and the air, realizing that he really is there. I may not know everything about God and his qualities, but I feel him here now, alone on my knees. The stillness and peace he shines in my heart is more beautiful than any work of art. He soothes me, calms me, and fills me with love. Now I know where to look for him, not around, but above. The light I feel from above is hotter and stronger than any friction that I had ever felt from or in my addiction. So to him, to his light, and his love I will cling until I am ready to stand up and sing, singing or yelling with hands open like a tree. Thank you, God. I am finally free. Thank you, Sally. Thank you for having me. Yeah. Thank you so much for sharing that. We're going to pause there um, for this episode. Sally did engage in a question and answer with me, um, kind of about her first step and some of her journey. And, and so I'll share that in the next episode. That would be episode, I don't know, 106, I think. Um, and so we'll go ahead and share that in our next episode. I'm so grateful to Sally and for her willingness to share such a deeply personal story. Those first steps when written in narrative form like that can be incredibly healing and also incredibly difficult to face and to write. And I'm just so grateful for her willingness to share with us. In the next episode, um, she and I will continue our interview and kind of engage in a question and answer a little bit about her experiences, about her experiences in recovery and her experience writing her first step. So as always, ladies, I want you to remember that no matter how far you've gone, no matter where you're at in this very moment, you are worth recovery. No matter what's going on in your life, no matter how shameful you feel, no matter what you've done, no matter what your story looks like, you are 100% worth recovery. I know that. I believe in you and Sally believes in you and I know that you can do it. So keep up the fight. I think about you, I pray for you, and I love you. Until next time, Amy. The mission of Worth Recovery is to dispel shame and build hope in the lives of women struggling with and recovering from sex addiction. I am not associated with any 12-step group, religious organization, or therapeutic clinic. I am an addict sharing my own experiences and recovery.